What have I been reading about? I've been reading about various aspects of social media, both the mechanics of it, how to use various, uh, the pluretha of social media, but also some of the social and re relational ramifications of being involved in using things like Facebook and, and Instagram and, and those kind of things. And I was reading recently on the Instagram site uh, what it is. Why, why do they do this and what's it about? And their definition, what is Instagram? Well, Instagram is a fun and quirky way to share your life with friends through a series of pictures. Snap a photo with your mobile phone and then choose a filter to transform that image into a memory to keep around forever. Very impressive. We're, uh, we're building Instagram to allow you to experience moments in your friends' lives through pictures as they happen. We imagine a world more connected through photos. Okay. Then the next paragraph sort of caught my attention. It said here, it says, we have adopted a follower model. That means that if you're public, quote-unquote public, on Instagram, everyone can subscribe to follow your photos. Hmm that idea of a follower model of social media caught my attention. What does it mean to have a follower model? Now, they even give you some hints how to get followers on Instagram. If you need more, they're going to tell you how to do it. Here's, here's six ways, to get, just in case you need to know this, okay? Six ways to get more followers, thus my emphasis, followers on Instagram. Follow similar accounts, first of all. Instagram is a community, and you, you will find yourself gaining followers if you participate in that community. Secondly, like and comment on pictures. Once you start following some people, take some time to like and comment on their photos. Third, respond to comments in your own photos. Interact with your own followers is essential for maintaining, this is, I love this phrase, your follower base your follower base. Fourth, ask your, ask your followers questions. Use the photo caption to ask questions of your followers. Fifth, connect your Facebook account. Instagram is now owned by Facebook. And you are losing out on a lot of potential followers if you don't connect your account. Sixth, fill out your bio. And your Instagram bio is an often overlooked but very important part of your Instagram account. Let people know who you are and why they should follow you. Now, obviously by my tone, I'm tipping my hand on what the concept is that I'm trying to work through. And that's the, all this following that's going on. Building a follower base, increasing our followers. And as I thought about it and read some other things about following, I think maybe in our culture, in our day and age, we're very flippant with the use of that word, that concept, and what we really do is we confuse being, having followers with fans. Followers and fans. What, what we used to call a fan, we now call a follower. Right? A fan, by definition, is somebody who's enthusiastic. They're a devotee to something or someone. Yeah, they could be a fan of a sport, a fan of a pastime, a fan of a celebrity. Like, I'm a football fan, or I, I follow the Seattle Seahawks. What does that mean? I mean, I'm a fan of the Seahawks. Or, I follow 
a, a, a celebrity. I'm a fan of Charlie Chaplin or whoever. I'm a fan. I'm devoted to them. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves, in our culture, in light of even our walk with Christ, does the language of following, does this shift in the meaning of following to being a fan, does that maybe impact the way we view following Christ? Does it influence what we be? When, when, the, when Jesus says, follow me, is he saying, hey, I want you to be my fan? A guy named Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. Becoming a Complete and Committed Follower to Christ. And, and Kyle says this. He says, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, Jesus, but there is no interest in truly following Him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want, to be so they want to be so close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of them. He goes on and says, Unlike true followers, fans tend to confuse their adoration with devotion, their knowledge with intimacy, their feelings with faith. But Christ will have none of this. He summons us to a relationship on His terms, not ours, such that it is impossible to say yes to Him without saying no to oneself. So if you feel Jesus is interfering with your life, then, well, welcome to Christianity. If you find living the Christian life easy, then perhaps it isn't the Christian life you're living. Will you stand with me as we read from the God's Scripture? We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 today as we work through Matthew's Gospel on how he describes what it means to be a follower of Christ, not just 2,000 years ago, but for us today. So hear these words of, of Scripture, a description of an event, a description of what Christ says, not simply of something that's happened, but something that is happening in our lives. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to, the, to his disciples, what, why, do your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call sinners and not those who are righteous, especially self-righteous. Lord, I pray that we in this room can acknowledge before you not only our sin, but our need for a physician. No one here is exempt and no one here is exempt from the call that you have on them to follow you. I pray, Lord, as each of us, as individuals, as married couples, as families, as a church, as home communities, we would hear and be able to wrestle with and digest and 
respond to your call on our lives to follow you here, now, on your terms and in your conditions. We thank you, Lord, in your precious and glorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to look at this passage. We're going to walk through it, and we're going to see three things it tells us about being a follower of Christ. Three aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. First of all, following Jesus is personal. Following Jesus is personal. We see this in the very thing in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. There was a personal command by Jesus as he interacted with this man, and he names this man Matthew. We know this man to be, or understand this man to be, ultimately the author of the book that we're reading ourselves. This is where he comes into introduction to Jesus. Was this the first time they met, or have they had conversations before? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. But at some point, Jesus walks up to his place of employment and says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. Jesus gives a very personal, names his name, and says, come with me. And he arose and followed him. Now, Matthew, as an author, has already told us how Jesus called other disciples in a similar way. He did a similar thing to some of the other disciples. For example, back in chapter 4 of this gospel, this Matthew's Gospel, we read these words, Matthew 4, 18-22, and I'm just going to read them quickly for us. He says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his bro- John, his brother, and in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he, and Jesus, called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Notice when Jesus calls his disciples, he calls them, he calls them by name, and he calls them personally to follow them. And also notice that these men uh, were, had to be personally decisive on responding to Jesus' call. And they had to take action in order to demonstrate that they were responding to Jesus' call. The wording is very explicit in all these accounts. We read that they immediately left their nets and followed him. They didn't do this, they went and did this. That's the action. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Matthew himself has said to leave his place of employment, his tax booth, and follow Jesus. It was a decisive action that he took. Personally, I'm going to do this. We read this earlier with, in Matthew 8, just a chapter earlier, with some of the stuff that Jesus says that we find, may, you know, we treat it, maybe it's hyperbole, maybe he's just talking about exaggerations to get our attention, but Jesus said, as he interacted with disciples, and the disciple came and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sounds like harsh words. But what Jesus is really saying is Jesus demands his call is all or nothing. It's all or nothing. That makes us uncomfortable. We do not set the terms. We do not set the conditions of following Jesus. Jesus does. And that's what he did with these men. 
We, we sometimes treat making a decision, deciding to follow Jesus, deciding to be a Christian, deciding to attend a church, is sort of like becoming a member of Costco or a gym. Yeah, I can see the benefits, so I'm going to join. We use that joining line. I'm going to become a member of those things, and, and I'll use it when I want to, and when I don't want to, I won't use it. Um, unfortunately, many people treat following Jesus in the same kind of framework, mentality. Again, our culture, not just in its use of language, but in use of ideas, influences how we walk with Christ. If I like something, and I, or I, I think I need Jesus, then I will be here. I, if it's handy, otherwise I can, I, can, I can ignore him. I can do other things. If I find something better to do, I'll do it. But I know Jesus will be here when I get back. That's what often people feel about what it means to follow Christ. And, and I'm just using that generally. There is a personal decision that needs to be made. But this decision isn't just something we make once and then move on. The decision to follow Christ is a decision we make every single day. Deciding to follow Christ is not something that you do once and then go on about your business. The disciples is a, are a model of that. When they decided Jesus, they may, I got up every morning. Where is he going now? What's he going to do today? I don't know, but I'm going to follow. I'm still not going home. I'm still not doing those other things. I'm going to continue to follow. It's an everyday decision. It's, it, it, deciding to follow Christ is more like getting married than it is joining Costco. Getting married is not a decision to be done lightly or flippantly, obviously. It's a decision that requires a willingness to make a long, lifelong commitment. Costco doesn't. A gym doesn't. If we're lucky to get through a gym in a year, we're doing pretty well. Now, we live in another, in a culture that talks about falling in love. You ever hear that? Maybe you said that. I, we fell in love in college. Or in the movie, the famous line, at some point, he or she is going to look into the other's eyes and say, I think I'm falling in love with you. That is nonsense. You don't fall in love. You fall into a pit. You fall into a hole. You fall off a roof. You jump out of a plane. You fall to the ground. But you do not fall in love. Love is not gravity. It's not a force that pulls you uncontrollably to yourself. And yet we treat love and the language of love as if it is. Love is a decision. Monica and I are celebrating in a couple weeks our 35th wedding anniversary. We're, we're, trying to get, we're trying to get to that date, so just bear with it, okay? We did not say 36 years ago we decided to love each other. We have to get up every day and say, we're going to choose to love this person. And let's be honest, some days it's harder than others. Right? Love is a decision that's made over and over. If you're a parent, they're great, those kids. Sometimes you have to choose real hard to love them and not kill them. Is that correct? Love is a decision that's made every single day. And by the way, when we use this fall-out-of-love language, it also implies something that's extremely important that we understand. When somebody says they fall in love, it also implies that they can fall out of love. 
If it's an uncontrollable force, it's not my fault. I just don't have those feelings anymore. And sometimes we treat Jesus that way. Those feelings I had when I first understood his grace and mercy, it's just different now. It's not the same. So therefore, I don't need to follow him the way I did before. It's just not true. To follow Jesus is to respond to his call as individuals. Yes, as one at a time. To be submitted to his direction. It means becoming a disciple. The word disciple simply means a disciplined learner. A disciplined, lifelong learner. That's what a disciple is. It's, we are, when we follow Christ, we're choosing every day not only to be a disciple, to learn from him, but we're also choosing to be servants, lifelong servants to a master. That's why we call him Lord. To follow Jesus is a decision that needs to be made every day. And Jesus said this himself explicitly. Well, we're going to see this later in, in Matthew. But he says, and he, and he, Jesus said to all, this is, this is a, I'm, Jesus is broadcasting this line he's about to say. If anyone, it's open-ended, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I'm not going to unpack that line because in a few chapters we're going to unpack that at greater depth. But understand that Jesus, Jesus is saying explicitly, Following him is a day-to-day decision, not a one-time thing. Following Christ is, is, is personal in another way because it requires we personally acknowledge our need for mercy. This passage just oozes that all over the place. The re- repetition of words, the, the back and forth of the dialogue is saying this is an issue of a need for mercy. If we look at it, verses 10 and 9, it says, And Jesus reclined at the table at the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, does, does your teacher not eat, does your teach, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These bad people. But when he, Jesus, heard this, he said to them, those who are well are no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go, what it, go what, and learn what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came. Why? Why should they go learn about mercy? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For I came not to call, to call them to follow me. I didn't call righteous people to follow me. Jesus said, I'm excluding them from the call. To hear the call of Christ, we have to acknowledge that we fall in the camp of sinners. Matthew just responded to the call. I think it's important we understand that when Jesus said this, this call, I call him call sinners, we're doing this in the context of him calling a man named Matthew. Matthew, come follow me. And by the way, I call sinners. What does that mean? What does that mean for Matthew? It means that Jesus did not say to Matthew, hey, Matthew, get your act together. Hey, Matthew, you prove to me that you're worthy of being one of my disciples. Matthew, you show me you can get the job done and then you can be on my team. That's not what Jesus said. Matthew, in order to respond to Jesus' call to follow him, Matthew, in the context of this passage, had to acknowledge that he was sick in need of a physician and that he was a sinner in need of mercy. The only thing that qualifies us to be followers of Jesus is that we are willing to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of mercy. If we refuse to acknowledge that, we will not hear the call to really follow Christ. 
I was thinking about this this week, and the passage that comes to mind, and when Sean Garman was here, he and I used to talk about this passage a lot in light of the context of Red Sea and what we're trying to do. And that passage is out of 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, he's dealing with some issues with them, he says, and he's pushing on them as a, as a leader, or as a, an apostle, he's pushing on some of their weaknesses. And he says to them, and, don't, and do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or the idolaters, those who worship idols, or adulterers, those who have relations with not their spouse, or, nor men, because the words sound the same, that's why I clarified it, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Sounds like a Pharisee to me. Until you read his next line. Then Paul says, and such were some of you. Paul's saying all those evil things, all that sin is bad. It's not part of the kingdom. And you were that, but you're not now. He goes on after he said, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. The unhealthiness was fixed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You are now called saints. He says, you were justified. You have been declared righteous because of Christ, not because of your own doing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why we get to be in God's kingdom, because of the work of Christ and the work of His Spirit not because we got our act together. And such were some of us. The Pharisees did not get this. That's one of the parts of this passage. The Pharisees did not get what Jesus was trying to say or what Jesus was doing. We see this in verse 11. He says, And when the Pharisees saw this, them eating with people, reclining at the table, having a casual, not just a meal, but a conversation and being intimate in the sense of conversation and relationship, the Pharisees got bent out of shape. And he said, they said to his disciples, they wouldn't even approach Jesus, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The, the disdain, the reproach is in their voice. These guys are self-righteous. These guys think they have their act together. And because they have their act together, if you're different from them, you must not. They had no grace. They had no mercy. They didn't even have kindness for people who are hurting and they labeled as sinners. Jesus says to them, guys, you go, leave here and learn, which is an insult to them. They're supposed to, they thought themselves very well educated. Jesus is saying, hey guys, go back to school and I want you to study this. He's quoting an Old Testament passage. He says, I want you to study this. I, this is God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. The Hebrew word is hesed. It means literally steadfast love. God gives mercy. He gives his steadfast love. His love that keeps giving and giving and giving regardless of what the object is doing back. And God says, that's what I'm looking for in my people. Not just the sacrifice. Isn't it, the irony, I think, part of this is the, the uh, what is the sacrifice? It's a ritual. These guys, the Pharisees and others, give the rituals uh, superficially out of performance without understanding its true meaning. What is a sacrifice for? In the Old Testament, what was the point of whether hacking up an animal or spilling something or whatever you were doing, what was the point of a sacrifice? Somebody tell me. I can't hear you. need to talk louder. 
Display your faith, but you're trying to do something, accomplish something. What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. Pay for your sins. Okay? They're, they're saying, the irony here is, a sacrifice in the Old Testament was saying, we're sinners, so God has prescribed us to do these actions to remind us that we're sinners and to, in essence, um, pacify him for another round. I'm oversimplifying it. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were doing the sacrifices because it was a sacrifice for sin, but the irony here is, because they did sacrifice, they didn't think they were sinners. Because they did the action, went through the ceremony, they went through the perfunctory busyness of doing their religious activity on days of atonement and whatever, they're like, I'm not a sinner. What's wrong with these people? And Jesus said, that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for mercy. He's looking for said. He's looking for steadfast love. Why did the Pharisees have a hard time giving mercy and kindness to those who were different than them and they viewed less than them? It's really simple. It's because they had never experienced mercy. Now, it's not because mercy wasn't offered to them by God. It's because they refused it because they felt they didn't need it. So therefore, they didn't get mercy. They weren't about to give mercy. And those sinners are bad people. Don't be around them. How do we live in this tension, put these pieces together personally, how do we live in this tension of daily deciding to follow Jesus and yet our awareness of our sin, like Matthew, our need for a physician, our sinners in need of mercy? How do we live with that? Our unhealthiness, our weaknesses, our dysfunction. You fill in the word. And here's how. Hear this. We make a decision today, today, to follow Jesus out of gratitude for past mercy, hope for future mercy, and a confidence in the power of present mercy. That's the gospel. That's a piece of the gospel. That's a promise of the gospel. Let me say that. We make a decision today, every day, not out of our own ability, not out of our own righteousness, not because we got our act together. We make the decision to follow Jesus every day out of gratitude for past mercy that we have received in Christ, for hope for future mercy that we will receive when we need it tomorrow and next week and next year, but also a confidence in the power of present mercy today. And because of that promise, we can face and say, Lord, I know my dysfunction, I know my sin, I know my traps, but I'm going to follow you to the best of your empowering out of your mercy today. Following Jesus is personal. Following Jesus is something else. It's also relational. Where do we get this? Well, this is actually something that's subtle and easy to miss. He said, And Jesus reclined at the table, verse 10, in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with, with Jesus and his disciples. Those three words. And his disciples. And his disciples. It's plural. He, he, he interacted with Matthew. Matthew responded. And Matthew responded as a disciple, but now there's a group of the disciples. And um, they were with him, together, as a group. When we read about Jesus calling people to follow him, we see that once called... Followers of Jesus, a.k.a., also known as the disciples, immediately came into community relationship, 
centered on Jesus, but always in the company with one another. The followers of Jesus were always together. Jesus calls his disciples into a discipling community. It's easy for us to miss, and I think it's because the wording of plural, disciples and, the, and followers, and it's all in the plural, church, it's all in the plural. It's so ubiquitous, it's so throughout all of Scripture that we miss it. Because that's the way all of Scripture, all of the New Testament reads, in the plural. And yet we read it often as an individual. What does this have to do with me? But Jesus didn't call the followers to himself by himself. He called them with other people. If you read all the Gospels, if you just go through and start reading the Gospels, you will see, we will see, if we did this, that Jesus almost rarely, in fact, I can't think of an incident myself, interacts with a person one-on-one without somebody else being around. He is always with his disciples. He's always interacting with groups of people. Even when he has one-on-one conversations, he does talk to individuals, so don't hear that he doesn't do that. He does. But most of the accounts we have of him talking to individuals, other people are around him. His disciples are around. They're overhearing him. They're listening. They're a part of the group, even though they may not be directed to it. And even other incidences, as I was thinking about this, where, where uh, Jesus does told that we talk to an individual, like the woman at the well in John. He's talking with one woman at, a to- at this one time at a well. Okay, well, see there, but she wasn't a disciple yet. Where, where were his guys? He sent them all to go get food. You need 12 men to go get a meal? No, he sent them together as a group. Go do this. Get this done together. He didn't have a concept of you go do this, you go do this, and come back when you're done. Even when he sent out the 72, he sent them out in pairs. He always, they were always together. They had different designations. There was the 12. There was the inner three of Peter, James, and John. There was the 72. But no matter how we look at it, they were always in community with other followers of Christ and other disciples. If we read the rest of the New Testament, the letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Galatians, fill it in. They're written to churches. They're written to groups of Christians. They are to be understood in the plural. How are we going to live in light of the gospel of Christ? They would not have understood it in our Western American way of what does this have to do with me. They would have read it as what does this have to do with us. And even letters that were to individuals like Timothy and Titus, what is the point of those letters? He's telling Timothy and Titus, this is how you live in community, and this is how you lead a community of believers. Even the topic of the letters is plural, even though he addresses an individual. That's so subtle, but it's so huge. Jesus still calls people into a discipling community. Jesus still calls people to be a part of a a group of followers of Christ. The Bible calls this the church. And each of us, this is a key point, each of us must personally respond to the call of Jesus, like we talked about, to follow him for ourselves. But Jesus never calls any of us to follow him by ourselves. Jesus calls, each of us must personally respond to the call of Jesus to follow him for ourselves. It's personal, like we already talked about. 
But Jesus never calls any of us to follow him by ourselves. Our faith, our walk with Christ, our response to the gospel, our following Jesus is personal, but it's never private. It's not a biblical concept. Following Jesus is personal. Following Jesus is relational. And thirdly, following Jesus is missional. Missional. Missional is a word we use now, we throw around, it's very cliche in the church world. It means being on mission. What's a mission? Biblically, it means being sent. So being, uh, following Jesus means being sent. But that doesn't alliterate with personal and relational, so we went with missional. Okay? Following Jesus means joining him in what he has sent us to do. What he, is, what he was sent to do, excuse me. Now, if I say to you, if I give you a can, like to Jordan or Tom, I say, hey, listen, I'm going downstairs, follow me, I'm going downstairs to do something. By implication, the fact that I'm calling them to follow me means that I'm going someplace else, and I have something to do, and I'm inviting them to go with me and to ha- participate in some manner in what I'm going to do, right? The very command to follow implies all that, and it applies it with Jesus, too. When he says follow... He doesn't mean be a fan. He means move and do what I'm doing. Jesus said explicitly to Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew, come follow me. And he even adds the mission. When he called James and John and and Peter and Andrew, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He used the analogy. They were fishermen dealing with the business of fishing with their family, family business, Hey, you guys understand this fishing stuff? You understand all the nuances of fishing? Take all that, and now I'm going to apply those concepts to you fishing men for the kingdom, people for the kingdom. They understood the metaphor. It's a mission. And then Jesus not only said that to them, but he demonstrated it with Matthew. When he called Matthew out of his tax booth, the very next line, where are they? They're in Matthew's house. And who are they with? Other tax collectors and sinners. Jesus demonstrated to him what he's doing. And then they reclined at the table. They were eating a meal together. They were interacting. They were having a party together. They were on mission. And Jesus invited um, Matthew into that. Not only did he invite Matthew into that, he said, Matthew, I'm going to leverage your place. We're going to eat your food and your house. That's how intimately he wanted Matthew to be part of the mission. Jesus repeats this often, and we can go through numerous. I'm not going to go through numerous. And Jesus said, says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you to his disciples. Jesus, the Father sent Christ to earth to die for sin and to re- reconcile the world to himself. I'm sending you to do the same thing. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Make disciples. For Jesus, Jesus said, for I, I, I came not to call righteous, but the sinners. And, and what does he call sinners to do? I came to call them to do what? Well, basically, to follow him and call other sinners to follow him. That's really basically what it's about. We, we complicate it a little bit more, but that's basically what it's about. Verse 10, he said, Jesus reclined at the table, and many tax collectors and sinners came to them and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So as Jesus and his disciples did ministry, they were with other tax collectors and sinners. That was the mission. 
They were, they were, not only were they people called relationally to follow Jesus and be with other followers, but they were also called to be with other, those that they should be calling, should call to follow him. Other people who need to hear the message to follow. And what's interesting in Matthew, in Matthew's account back to back, is that Matthew repeatedly, and Luke does this, is those accounts of when he interacts with people and calls and follow, he did, we're given little explicit things like this. Let me show you instead of just telling you. Uh, we read in chapter 8 that Jesus calls Peter and, and those guys, and he's called them, he's doing some ministry, and then he says, and when Jesus, Jesus entered Peter's house, Peter owned a home and a family, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, he healed her. And then they, were, they brought many people to him who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits and healed the sick. The point is, Jesus went into Peter's house, interacted with his family, and the friends and the neighbors and the relatives all came to interact with Jesus. And then the, man who were, the men who were healed by the, and the, the demons after across the sea, and they, the demons went into the pigs. Matthew doesn't record what his, Jesus' interaction with those guys, the, the demon-possessed man, but Luke does. And this is what Luke tells us, is after this, the man who, from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away, saying, why? Why would Jesus send somebody away who's going to follow him? Why would he do that? Jesus explains, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city, the city that rejected Jesus, how much Jesus had done for him. And the paralytic, the next verse, the paralytic comes in a mat, his friends bring him, and he gets healed. What does Jesus tell him to do? Rise, take up your mat, and go home. And the man rose and went home. Why? To tell people about what Jesus had done for him. Jesus understands that some of the times we miss, the, most, the closest people to us are the ones who he need to hear and experience our call to follow him too. Following Jesus is missional, not just in our actions, but also in our identity. Also in our Jesus changes people. Not just gives us a list, a to-do list. Do this, do this, do this, you're good to go. No, Jesus calls us to change who we are. Following Jesus means we, becoming what he intends us to be, not just doing what he intends us to do. Jesus said to Andrew and James, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Hear that, I, the language. I will make you fishers of men. You were fishers of fish, but now I'm going to change your identity. I'm going to make you something different, and you're going to be fishing men. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to teach you some new fishing techniques. He said, hey, I'm going to change your identity. Jesus is saying, I'm going to change who you are. I'm going to reorient all your life to be on mission with what I'm doing. That's what it means to follow me. Paul unpacks this in 2 Corinthians. He says, he says this, we've looked at this verse a, a number of times because it's so crucial for us understanding not just what it means to follow Christ, but also our mission here at Red Sea. He says, therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21, I'm just going to walk through this very quickly. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's in other words, he or she has responded to the call of Christ in the gospel. He is a new creation. It's a new identity. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Verse 18, for all this is from God, who 
through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation is when there's animosity or hostility between two persons. They can't get along. To be reconciled means whatever that hostility is, the cause of that, is removed, and those two parties can get back together. That's reconciliation. Whether it's between us and God, or a husband and a wife, or whatever, that's reconciliation. Jesus, uh, Paul's saying here, all this is from God. God's doing all the work. Who through Christ, because of Christ died for our sins, we are reconciled to himself, and then the next line, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself, and he says, okay, all of you guys who are now close to me, who are, are reconciled to me, I got a job for you to do. You go and reconcile other people to me. Verse 19, he says, that is, now Paul's going to explain. What does he mean? What do you mean, Paul? That is, in Christ, because of Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead, God was reconciling the world to himself. God's doing the work, not counting their trespasses against them. He paid for sin, the penalty for sin, the power of sin. It's done. But he's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So now he's given us the ministry, the service of reconciliation, and he's given us entrusted. A trust is a stewardship word. It means it's something highly valuable. I'm going to give you something really, really valuable. When, when you ask a babysitter, watch your kids, you're entrusting something to them, right? Something valuable, make sure they're okay when I get back. That's what he's talking about. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Just like an ambassador to a nation, we represent God's kingdom. We are ambassadors God making his appeal through us. When we talk, when we act, when we serve, when we're generous because of the gospel, God is acting through that and working through that. That's what Paul's saying. And that's what it means for us to follow Christ and live that way, to be missional, to be sent. Following Christ is personal. Following Christ is relational. Following Jesus is missional. just want to ask you a few questions. Following Jesus is personal. Have you personally and decisively made the decision to follow Christ? Have you ever made that decision to say, yes, I'm going to respond to the gospel, that Christ died for my sins and rose again. That's for me. And I'm going to follow him because he died for my sins. If you can't name it, I know some people, oh, when I was a child, I, know, I understand that, that's fine. But if you're an adult and you can't think of that, we need to talk. Do you make the decision to follow Jesus every day? It might be a new concept to you. You thought, well, I decided 10 years ago. Did you decide yesterday? Did you decide today? Are you going to wake up tomorrow and decide to do the same thing? It makes a difference. Following Jesus is relational. Who are you explicitly following Jesus with? If you can't name anybody, that's a problem. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. But you should name somebody that you together are following, doing the best you can. Are you following Jesus in community? There should be a connection to a greater group of followers, a.k.a. the church. It doesn't have to be necessarily this church. There is no following Christ apart from a church. Following Jesus is missional. As followers of Jesus, 
Who are you calling to follow him with you? Who are you calling saying, hey, Bob, Mary, Frank, Joe, whoever, I'm following Christ, come follow with me. This is what it looks like. My life is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You follow me. And if that seems audacious, Paul said it frequently. He said, follow my example as I follow Christ. As a sinner saved by mercy, who are you extending mercy to? As a sinner saved by mercy, who are you extending undeserved favor, mercy to because they need it? Not even because they acknowledge it, but because they need it. If we can answer those, it tells us if we're following Christ today. By the way, if you've been a part of Red Sea for any length of time, this should not be news to you in any stretch. This should be a reminder. Our identities and our pathways are these things, right? Following Jesus is personal. Our pathways, our identity is we are servants of Christ. Following Jesus is relational. Our next identity is we're family in Christ. And following Jesus is missional. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, as you walk out to the left, there's a diagram. And there's handouts there. I'm going to close by just calling you to take communion, like we do every week. Every week we end a message pointing to the blood and body of Christ to remind us that he died for our sins. But today as you go up, I want to invite anybody who has responded, who has made the decision, I'm going to follow Christ, And if you're not sure, then talk to Josh and myself. But respond to that to go up and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice or whatever it is you want to use and pray and give thanks. But I want you to think a little bit about this today. And that is this. When you take communion, take it out of gratitude for past mercy, hope for future mercy, and a confidence in the power of present mercy as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your past mercy that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we knowing that you have paid the penalty for our sin and we are righteous and free and justified in saints before you. We thank you, Lord, that as we look forward to the struggles and anxieties and the hassles and the whirlwind of life we have in the, either tomorrow or this week, We thank you that your mercy will be new every single day because we need it new every single day. But we also pray for today, Lord, this moment, these hours, this afternoon, that whatever we're doing, whoever we're talking to, whatever we're acting, uh, um, doing, I pray that you would, we pray, that you would remind us through the work of your Spirit that we have your mercy in the moment. We can have confidence to act on your behalf and to follow you and to deal with things in our life or have conversations because you are there, you are with us, and your mercy is just generous to us. We thank you for your mercy, your everlasting love. And it's in that love that we pray and seek in your name. Amen.